Welcome to ID the Future, a podcast about intelligent design and evolution. Welcome to ID the Future. This is Senior Fellow at Discovery Institute, Jay Richards, and I'm joined today by my friend and co-author, Guillermo Gonzalez. As it happens, almost 15 years ago, our book co-authored The Privileged Planet actually came out. That was way back in March of 2004, and it's actually a little depressing to think about the fact that that's been 15 long years. But I thought Guillermo and I would have a conversation just about development since the book came out. So for those of you who don't know Guillermo, let me just give you a brief introduction. Guillermo is an assistant professor of astronomy and physics at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana. He obtained his PhD in astronomy at the University of Washington and has worked at the University of Texas at Austin, Iowa State University, and Grove City College. He specializes in stellar spectroscopy and astrobiology. He's published almost 90 papers in astronomy journals, and he's the co-author of the astronomy textbook, Observational Astronomy. And as mentioned, he's also the co-author with yours truly of the book, The Privileged Planet, which came out in March of 2004. Guillermo, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about this. Yeah, well, we've, of course, continued to talk about the book, and we still lecture on it. And of course, the documentary that came out right after the book. So you know, we've, we've sort of stayed up to date on this stuff, but someone that were to pick up the book and read it now might wonder, okay, well, you know, what's the sort of progress of the evidence? But before we get to that, why don't you summarize what our basic argument is for listeners in the privileged planet? Yeah, so the basic thesis is that uh, the most habitable places in the universe offer also the best platforms for scientific discovery. And as kind of a corollary to that, the Earth is the most habitable planet that we know of in the universe, and it's also the best place to do science from. So the argument's not that, gosh, so many things have to go right to get a habitable planet that it must be designed. It's something a, a little more subtle than that. That's right. It's not just that uh, Earth-like planets are rare, although we do take that position that Earth-like planets are rare, and, uh, and particularly uh, for complex and even intelligent life, it's uh, Earth-like planets would be exceptionally rare in the universe, though we just don't know the probabilities well enough to say that we would be unique. And our argument doesn't mm. require us to be uh, unique, at least the Earth, to be unique in the universe. Yeah, and that's I think that's the sort of thing, you know, the, the book title and just what people are used to, that they initially always expected us to just make this sort of probability argument that conditions for life are so so improbable that therefore the Earth must have been designed. Um, the argument's really about this pattern, this telling pattern that these very rare places in the universe where observers like ourselves can exist also happen to be the best places overall for doing science, for discovering the universe around us. And we argue that that's, it's that pattern that's telling, that's fishy, that suggests purpose rather than a, a sort of merely blind processes. And so, of course, in, in the book, and we'd have to talk about the details of, you know, how many other planets are there? What are the other extrasolar planets like? Um, and at the time, I can't remember, but I, my sense is that there were only a few hundred extrasolar planets that had been discovered when the book came out. But that, that's, that's right. certainly something that's changed since then, right? Yes, uh, there were only a few hundred. I, I, I like That's right. I can't remember exactly the number in uh, 2004, but it's somewhere around a couple of hundred planets at that time. And most of them had been detected with uh, what's called the Doppler method using spectroscopy and only a few with uh, what's called the photometric transit method. Uh, and now that's changed dramatically, uh, especially with the uh, Kepler spacecraft, mm. which just finished its mission uh, last fall. 
And uh, now we have a new mission called TESS that started last summer that's pretty much uh, taken over from Kepler using the same technique. It's looking for small dips in the brightness of a star as a planet transits in front of it from our line of sight. Now, the latest number that I've seen is just past 4,000. So 4,000 4, 4, detected extrasolar planets so far. Yeah. So the number has really risen dramatically. This has been an explosion in research uh, in this area, uh, but not just in exoplanets research, but astrobiology in general over the last 15 years, both on the theoretical and observational fronts. And in, in general, astrophysics, uh, uh, the whole field, uh, has seen tremendous growth and an increase in our knowledge, uh, therefore, of the universe around us. We might rightly call this the era of surveys. There's various space probes. I, I mentioned a couple. There's Gaia, which is uh, measuring distances to stars in our Milky Way galaxy with unprecedented precision. Uh, we just detected gravity waves for the first time in yes. 2015. Another fabulous uh, confirmation of general relativity, but especially the, in the area of astrobiology. These discoveries allow us to place the Earth in, in its proper context. How do we compare to other exoplanetary systems? Are we average, are we typical, or are we very atypical? And it's turning out to be uh, more and more as the data come in that the solar system is quite special. It's quite atypical compared to exoplanets. That's not the take that you get whenever an extrasolar planet is discovered. It's usually framed not simply as, oh, we've discovered another planet, but that rather it, it somehow indicates that there's nothing especially unusual about the Earth. But I mean, is that an accurate <laughs> sort of description of, I mean, we've got some 5,000 extrasolar planets that have been detected. I mean, what's, what's the general trend? Yeah, so the general trend is... Uh, and this was already evident back in 2004, so it doesn't really change our conclusions from the privileged planet where we discuss exoplanets in there. But it does strengthen our, our statements because now we have much better statistics. And so we're finding planets that tend to have eccentric orbits, so highly non-circular orbits, in other words. Hmm. Uh, we're finding giant planets located close to their host stars, which is very different from our solar system. And mm -hmm. we think these kinds of planetary architectures are, are not very conducive to uh, planets uh, with life on them uh, because they create large climate swings in the case of a large eccentricities or in case of Jupiter's located close to their host stars. They prevent terrestrial planets from forming there. And if they migrated, they would have ejected perhaps the, the any terrestrial planets that might have been forming in those areas. So, right. It's a serious bulls in the China closet if they're moving around uh, in the neighborhood of a smaller planet. So yeah, so we're so we're finding tremendous variety in in, in the, the properties of all these planetary systems, and uh, it's beginning to look that uh, our solar system is quite exceptional. So, so your sense then is that yeah, that we've gotten a lot more details, we've gotten a lot more sort of individual pieces of data, but the trend has been more or less in the direction that it was in two thousand four. That yes, there's extrasolar planets, there's other systems. Uh, with planets in them, which no one really doubted, you know, even before the first extrasolar planet was discovered, but that we're not finding a preponderance of Earth-like planets or even systems that are similar to our own solar system. That's right. In fact, what is the, uh, if we don't count 
say Mars, which is really the most Earth-like planet other than Earth, I suppose. But yeah. I mean, what's what's the sort of closest that that we've gotten in terms of discovering something that's in a system kind of like ours, the planet that's kind of like the Earth? Yeah. So uh, there are uh, just literally a handful, just a two, one or two or three systems where you now, depending on the uncertainties, there's always uncertainties with the measurements where there's a roughly Earth-sized planet roughly in the circumstellar habitable zone of its star. Uh, mm-hmm. And these cases, these, if I recall now, I don't remember their, their telephone numbers, but these systems are around stars that are less massive than the sun. Probably those stars are more active than the sun, mm-hmm. so they, they have uh, more dangerous radiation in their environment. So, yeah, so there's always going to be a most, quote, Earth-like right. planetary system, but they're still quite different from our own Earth. And uh, the, the most we can determine at this point about their properties is uh, the masses of the planets and their sizes mm-hmm. and then their locations around the stars that they orbit. Uh, and in just a, a very few cases, we can even say something about their atmospheres. But that's only for the, the so-called hot Jupiters that orbit very closer. Large ones. Yeah. Right. So are we going to get even more sort of high-resolution data from either current missions that are just coming online or on and future missions? Will we be able to actually at some point image extrasolar planets, for instance? I think uh, that possibility is coming very soon, especially with a James Webb Space Telescope uh, due, to, due to be launched. Uh, it keeps getting pushed back. It might be uh, next year at this point, but uh, that's going to be the, pretty much the replacement to the Hubble Space Telescope can be quite a bit bigger telescope out in space. And uh, we should be able to get some direct images of uh, planets going around some of the nearer stars with planets. And uh, we'll be able to say more about, oh, for example, um, do they have cloudy atmospheres? Hmm. Um, and do they have oceans? We can actually maybe measure their rotation periods and maybe see ocean mm-hmm. glint. That's something that's talked about. So, yeah, we expect a significant new uh, observations to be made in the next two or three years of uh, a few of the nearby systems that we can see uh, more clearly. Well, it's, you know, something that I thought at the time was sort of fun about the book was that we made a lot of risky claims knowing that there was a bunch of data soon to come online. And in fact, just to make it easy on critics, we actually supply a chapter where we say, okay, here's sort a section and a chapter on objections. Here's how you refute our argument. We kind of gave the conditions. You know, if aliens show up tomorrow and they're based on a completely different kind of chemistry from a different planetary system, completely unlike our own, that's going to put a serious dent in our argument. Or if Earth-like planets seem to just form, you know, under all sorts of conditions, that would have caused us trouble too. So, of course, it's gratifying, having made the predictions, to have these effectively filled in at a higher resolution over the last 15 years. You know, I want to talk about the sorts of things that would have, you know, maybe additional confirming evidence, but I'm thinking, let's save that for a separate episode. And I'm wondering, what's really just kind of stayed the same? What would you say, other than extrasolar planets, are there other things either that have changed with the evidence or that have have stayed the same in the last 15 years since we wrote the book? Well, uh, I would say our basic conclusions have stayed the same. Certainly, there are lots of details that are changing as we talked about with the extrasolar planets, every every branch of science has seen just a tremendous explosion in data collection and also theory work and geology and modeling the Earth's interior and its evolution of its magnetic field, the orbit of the moon, 
is still an active area of research. Uh, as it turns out, the moon's origin is a very complex subject, and there's still a lot of uncertainties there. But even with all this new data, in data from cosmology, uh, we talked about a little bit with gravity waves and imaging a, a black hole in a previous podcast. Mm-hmm. But the basic conclusions haven't changed, that we really have a remarkable platform for scientific discovery from the Earth, and that worlds like this are hard to come by. <laughs> That's right. So we certainly have every reason. You've you got to, of course, use your uh, uh, discernment when you're thinking about environmental issues. But at least at this basic level, so far as we know, there's we've only got one planet. We're not going to be... Yeah, we're, we're not going to be... <laughs> <laughs> all escaping even to Mars, let alone to uh, some planet around another right. another star in another system. There's, you know, we, this is the one we've got. That's right, and uh, we should appreciate it more. Uh, I mean, I think people take for granted just just what a wonderful environment it is uh, for seeing and, and learning about the universe around us. Just one example: Why can we see the stars? Right, uh, we hmm. go outside at night, away from city lights and enjoy the view of the starry heavens and that didn't have to be that way yeah but we happen to be living in a universe where of course we have the requirements for life which is a necessity for being observers but not only that we have a lot more it's kind of an extravagant universe mm. uh, there's a lot more that than uh, we should have thought we, we deserved such as seeing the stars seeing rainbows you know who ordered that <laughs> yeah, ex- yeah, exactly. Ancient man, you know, hunting mammoths didn't, didn't need rainbows. I mean, That's he didn't right. need to be able to, he wasn't trying to navigate by the stars. He needed to have, you know, energy from the sun to hit the surface, but he didn't necessarily need to have clear skies so he could see the stars at night. And the fact that we talk about this in the book, but even the fact, right, that the sky is dark is itself kind of implies that the universe isn't infinite and eternal, That's right? Olber's right? paradox. What's the, what's the basic idea? So the basic idea behind Ober's paradox is that if the universe are infinite and extent infinitely old, then stars and galaxies go on forever. And uh, so any line of sight your eye happens upon would eventually hit the surface of a star, no matter what direction mm. you looked at in the sky. And so on average, the whole sky would be the surface brightness of the sun. Um, <laughs> But obviously, not very interesting. Right. Obviously, it's not what it is. So the solution: to it is <laughs> yeah. the universe is finite in age. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's only a paradox if you assume the universe is infinite. That's in right. Age and expanse. Yeah. It's otherwise, it's sort of just what you would expect if you thought the universe had a beginning. Well, I want to stop there, and in our next conversation, I want to talk a little bit about new evidence that may add to our argument in the privileged planet. For for now, we'll stop. This again is Jay Richards, and I have been joined by astronomer and friend and my co-author in the privileged planet, Guillermo Gonzalez, and this is ID the Future. Thanks for joining us. In recent years, great leaps in DNA sequencing technologies have empowered scientists to study DNA as never before. But will Darwin's theory of evolution stand the test of this new data, this increasing evidence for design and purpose? You can find out when you read Michael Behe's revolutionary new book, Darwin Devolves, now available in bookstores and online at darwindevolves.com. This program was recorded by Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. ID the Future is copyright Discovery Institute. For more information, visit intelligentdesign.org and idthefuture.com.